hear water being poured. Was that? Wow. These things are too powerful. <laughs> I have super, super hearing now. <clears throat> Welcome, everybody. <clears throat> I'm hearing too much, actually. I may have to take these things out. No, I can't turn down. Yeah, now I don't hear a thing. <laughs> no, I, I hear enough. I hear my own voice. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. I'd like to begin by, um, uh, as my guru always began, by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varisanmane Kesat Premse Hadik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would say that's the essence of spirituality, to welcome another person with love, to see divinity within yourself and divinity within another person. And he would say that within every person was the divine spark. But we have to do a little work to make, bring that spark out and turn it into a blaze. And that's why we do meditation, that's why we do spiritual practice, which we call sadhana, work on yourself, because there are certain tendencies that block that light. There's a great light shining, but it's blocked by our anger, our neurosis, our ego, our fear, our depression, and these block that light. And if we can work on it, get rid of these tendencies, which don't belong to who we essentially are, they belong to our personality, they belong to our uh, bad education to our uh, neurotic upbringing, perhaps. We can get rid of those, that light will shine forth. And when I met my guru, I saw a man whose light shone like no one else I ever met. It just shone brilliantly. There was so much love, so much energy, so much joy, so much wisdom in him. And here's a pattern of what we can begun through meditation, through self-inquiry, through inner work, through looking at ourselves intelligently with strength and getting rid of bad tendencies. They don't do us any good. They just make us less than what we should be. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you all. <clears throat> and also listening to Stephen's talk, I, uh, Stephen and Vani always send me uh, New Yorker articles and other articles about the death of the humanities. Um, because they know that, that, uh, that you know, I used to be uh, English in, in the field of English literature. And um, so I'm very interested because now there's a spate of articles that say that the teaching of English literature and the humanities in general is way down. That the, what do they call it, the STEM? Science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, has become very important and that you, nobody's, nobody reads anymore and the humanities, English uh, literature courses are gone and so on and, um, and it made me very sad and they quoted my, my, my old mentor from my university days, Lionel Trilling, 
Uh, he wrote a book in 1950 called The Liberal Imagination, in which he, he said that the humanities are the great hope because through reading these books, our souls are refined, our minds become broader, and our hearts open a certain way. And uh, that's what, that was why I went into that field. Uh, and I soon learned that that was not the case. <laughs> but my desire for exactly that experience abided, and I discovered I was looking in the wrong direction. Um, and maybe Lionel Trilling was too, and that there was a way to have exactly those effects, to broaden the mind, to deepen the heart, to open up, and so on. And that's called yoga. It's called meditation. It's called the inner in her quest. So I, I made a critique of the humanities way back in the late 60s and uh, left for something greater. So why should I be sad now? <laughs> I still am. <clears throat> now, I, um, you know, Gurdjieff used to say that there's, there's the art of man one, two, three, and then all the way up to what he called objective art of man number seven, which means the realized beings men and women number seven. Um, and so uh, now I, I still am a, a teacher of literature and student of literature. It's the literature of man and woman number seven. The writings, the poems, the writings, just the speech of the great beings because their words have the power to uplift us and transform us. And I celebrate that every Saturday night, the teachings of the great beings. And tonight, one of, uh, one of the great beings who was alive when I, when I went to Ganeshpuri, and she died right at the end of my stay with Baba, just before we were about to travel on the Second World Tour, uh, which was in early 74. And in late 73, uh, Mira Alfasa uh, died at the ripe age of 95 years old. And here she is. Here she is with Sri Aurobindo. Uh, Sri Aurobindo, of course, is a famous, famous sage polymath uh, of South India. Um, and he wrote volumes. Baba likes to say, you could fill this room with his books, <laughs> Baba would say. <clears throat> and um, uh, he was a recluse, uh, and he rarely saw people, but Mother Mira, Mira Alfasa, who is his Shakti, his spiritual partner, used to go and take care of the ashram. She was everywhere, buzzing everywhere, and then we'd go see him, talk to him, get instructions and move around. And so after he died in around 1950, uh, she continued to be the guru of the ashram in South India in Pondicherry. And uh, even into my years in Ganeshpur, so 20, 23 years later, she was there. And people from the ashram would go and visit her sometimes, and they'd tell me about her. And uh, she would give darshan and so on. So this is her with Aurobindo in one of their last uh, joint darshans, probably in 1949 or 50. And then we see her as a young woman. She was, uh, she was born in Paris in 1878. Uh, her parents were Jewish, her father was Turkish, and mother Egyptian. 
and she studied art, and then she became interested in spirituality. One of those early travelers to the East. So she's a European woman. She's possibly the first European Sadhguru that I, that I know of. Uh, so she traveled, uh, she studied uh, occult with the occultist Max Theon uh, in uh, Algeria. And then that wasn't enough, and they went to India. Uh, they met Aurobindo. Eventually she uh, returned to Pondicherry in 1920 and stayed there. And then she became prominent in the ashram and eventually uh, she became Aurobindo's uh, spiritual partner. He called her the mother from around 1924 on. And she organized the whole thing. So on. And then here we have a picture of her later, much later in life. This is the way she was at the end of, end of her life. <clears throat> so these are question answers with, um, with Mira Alfasa. These are after Aurobindo's death. And she was much more available to people than, than he was. These questions from the Ashramites. Question. This is from uh, 17 November 1954. So Aurobindo has been dead for four, four years. <clears throat> How can we get rid of Abhimana, the ego-based tendency that causes hurt, pride, self-pity, and the feeling that one is always being badly treated. What do we call that abhimana here? What do we call it? Tearing thoughts. Tearing thoughts or internal considering. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> uh, near Alfasa. Oh, good heavens. <laughs> good answer. First of all, see how utterly disastrous it is. It is very petty. It is destructive. And then take a step, a step farther and hold yourself up to ridicule. <laughs> See to what extent you are ludicrous. In this way, you get rid of it. I don't recommend that method, but uh, <laughs> we, I think uh, we feel pretty stupid anyway, and so it's uh, not very good. <clears throat> uh, she's, saying, she's saying there's, there's bad pride or ego, and there's also good pride. And good pride says, I'm not going to indulge myself in such a dumb way. I'm better than that. I am the self. I am the self. I don't have to be a whinging, uh, pathetic character. And so that's good pride. She's calling on that. She goes on, but as long as you take it seriously, as long as you justify the movement, as long as somewhere in the mind there's the idea, after all, it's quite correct, I was ill-treated and I suffer from ill-treatment, then it will never go. So we could call that self-pity, right? Just a certain kind of paranoia. Admit it, everybody has that tendency. Feel badly done by. <clears throat> but you can fight against it, she says. You can fight against these attitudes when you realize there's nothing good in them. So what's he saying there? She's saying, you have to make an intelligent assessment that you have certain habitual tendencies that come up in your mind, reaction to things. You react to the way people treat you. You always feel uh, you know, you're not treated with enough respect and so on. 
And you have to look at that and realize that it's not serving you to have those attitudes. And then you can do something like it. If you think it's okay, you're just one with it, then nothing happens. But if you realize, you know, it's not good for me to be uh, wallowing in self-pity. Let me say it this way. It's not good for you to wallow in self-pity. <laughs> Why is that? Not for moral reasons. I don't give a damn about moral reasons here. It's because it rips you off from a Shakti level. It depletes your energy. It makes you miserable. And you become a pathetic, whinging, prattling idiot. <laughs> when you're actually God walking the earth. So have some self-respect, for God's sake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're a sign of weakness, of inferiority, naturally a very considerable egoism and narrow-mindedness. They're small-hearted, petty feelings. You don't want them. <clears throat> so instead of being embarrassed by your bad tendency, be offended by them. Get rid of them. You know, we all have bad tendencies. There's not one person. Even the Buddha had bad tendencies. What were those? Jesus had a lot of bad tendencies. You know? <clears throat> However, now I'm going to be quoted at that. <laughs> it's out of context. <clears throat> However, your thinking should be in agreement. If you have the attitude, I've been hurt, I'm suffering, I'm going to show that I'm suffering, then that is what you'll get. You make a case for your suffering, which people do. They make an elaborate argument proving that they're the victim. <clears throat> I'm not going so far as to mention people who nurse a fairly secret spirit of vengeance and say, I have been made to suffer, I shall make them suffer. This indeed becomes nasty enough for people to notice that it should not exist, though it is not always easy to resist. It indicates something very petty in their nature. It may be very sensitive, it may be very emotional, it may have a certain intensity, but it is quite petty. It is all turned back on oneself and is quite petty. I guess uh, that was shaming them, that everything is quite petty, quite petty. <clears throat> of course, you can use your reason if you have one which works. <laughs> I love her saying that. Sometimes, you know, when you do sadhana, I know that when my years with Baba, my reason really didn't work. Uh, it, I used to think it worked before that. I was wrong, of course, but when I was there, it was like dismembered. Baba dismembered my brain, and so I just barely survived day to day. That was it's all I sought to do anyway, is to live from one day to the next, because I figured everything is being taken care of, and I have no idea what's going on, and I just, I just did it. <clears throat> but you should use your reason. Your intelligence is your, is your greatest aid in spirituality, and you can reason with it, and that's why you think about the teachings. You study the scriptures, you li listen to the words of the guru, you read Baba's books and books of the sages, because it imprints the right way of thinking about things, and then you can evaluate things through that. <clears throat> you can make use of reason and can tell yourself something which is very true, that our being 
that in our being, it is only egoism which always suffers. And if there was no egoism, there would be no suffering. <clears throat> and that if one wants the spiritual life, one must overcome this egotism. So the very first thing to do is to look straight at this suffering. Perceive to what extent it is the expression of a very petty egoism and then sweep the place clean. Make a clean ground and say, I don't want this dirt. I'm going to clean my inner chamber, my inner world. So look at it in the eye. Our, our culture, we do everything to avoid looking at it. We use all kinds of substances and uh, con consolations and everything. Because so look at it and it, don't be afraid of it. See it and you can shift it because there's a deeper reality which is not that suffering, not that, uh, not that depression, not that rage, not that anxiety. That's, that's not really who you are, something deeper. So that's, that's one question. <clears throat> question. Sri Aurobindo says the divine must always come first. I'm not sure that I understand what he means by coming first. That's a wonderful thing. The great yogis always, always say that. In fact, that's, the, I think, the main teaching. Put the divine first. Put God first. Put the self first. Put higher consciousness first. Put wisdom first. So the mother says, it means that, that, there, <clears throat> that therefore every other consideration, that above, that before every other consideration, it is the divine which is the first consideration, that all other considerations which are not the divine are secondary without real importance. Now, how do we say that here? It sounds very highfalutin to say, I put the divine first. Well, I was talking to you and I'm putting the divine first. We say that too in a different way by evaluating everything against the shakti. We say there's shakti in that or there's no shakti in that. Sometimes we hear ourselves speaking words and there's no shakti in it. There's no energy. There's no life. There's only a deadness. We evaluate it according to the feeling that we have. And when we speak the words of truth and when we think about things in the right way, there's an upliftment that happens. And that's unmistakable. And that means putting the divine first. And that when our minds are spinning out stories that bring us down, it means that they're not true. So your tearing thoughts are not true by that test. That's the litmus test. That's putting the divine first. It's the Shakti or the Guru, which are the same. He goes on. <clears throat> that is, when you have to make a choice, you may, must choose according to the divine inspiration or what will bring you closer to the divine or put you in the best situation to attain the divine because it is the divine who comes first. You always choose towards that upliftment, towards that energy. When you come to the ashram, you connect with the shakti. You discover this energy. This is called shaktipat. You can become aware that there's a higher energy that exists in this universe that you haven't been aware of. You get in touch with that, and then you start to, and then the discipline becomes to nurture and grow that energy. Notice 
the way you move psychologically and mentally and emotionally in a way that takes you, diminishes that energy, and you notice how you move to enhance that energy. And that's the whole of the discipline. And that's the same as putting the divine first. It's living for that, living for that upliftment, living for that connection. He says, she says, all personal interest or personal satisfaction must come afterwards, first the divine. <clears throat> and consecration to the divine must come first. Everything else comes afterwards. In our language, the shakti must come first. You can't, if you do something that you want, but it, it doesn't have shakti in it, it'll have bad consequences. If some desired object or goal comes, it comes. If it doesn't, it does not truly matter. What matters is the seeking for the divine. This is the first thing, the thing that comes before everything, the most important things. This is what Aurobindo means. So a person who's a real yogi practices that. Others of us who are on the path sometimes practice it, sometimes forget it. It's okay. You don't have to remember it all the time. But you see, the shakti works in you in such a way that when you forget it, it hits you upside the head. And you become aware of it because you suffer. And that suffering wakes you up and says, I moved in the wrong direction. I have to be moving towards, towards the light. I have to move towards the light, towards the energy, towards the upliftment. So, you like that one? <laughs> okay, question. Uh, what are the conditions in which there is a descent of grace? Orbindo had this curious idea of what he called the descent of the supermind. And he used to sit in his room trying to bring down the supermind. That's what, how we would term it. I don't know how we'd say it. We'd say, bring down the shakti. But he was trying to change, uh, make the Kali Yuga go away. <laughs> and uh, I would never dream of it. The Kali Yuga is fantastic. <laughs> you know, I, I really like the Kali Yuga because even if you're even a little less stupid, you seem very smart in the Kali Yuga. <laughs> But in the Satya Yuga, you have to be such a, such a high bar. You have to get up at 3 a.m. every morning and sit like a ramrod for three hours in meditation, never have a bad thought, always move forward. That's the Satya Yuga, man. Who wants to do that? In the Kali Yuga, you crawl out of bed, you sit for two minutes, you say the mantra three times, you're rewarded for it. Of course, God has very low expectations. The bar is very low. So, Kali Yuga is good. Don't knock it. <laughs> it's true. <clears throat> uh, Mira, Mira Alfasa says, the most important condition, this is to bring on, to, to experience grace, uh, <clears throat> is a childlike trust. The candid trust of a child who's sure that it will come, who doesn't even ask himself about it. When he needs something, he's sure that he's going to get it. Well, if this is the kind of faith, this indeed is the most important condition, an open-hearted trust. To aspire is indispensable. 
but some people aspire with such a conflict inside them between faith and the absence of faith, trust and distrust, between the optimism which is sure of victory and a pessimism which asks itself when the catastrophe will come. So we're all conflicted, but you have to, in terms of you have complete trust. And again, don't beat yourself up if you find that that describes you. Uh, you grow into that by practice, by meditation, by inquiry, you grow into that. Now this is an, now, if this is in the being, you may aspire, but you don't get anything if this lack of trust. And you say, I, I aspired, but didn't get anything. I, I know people who say, oh, I've been practicing for a long time, I didn't get anything. Didn't get anything. <clears throat> it's because you demolish your aspiration all the time by your lack of confidence. But if you truly have trust, it will be there. Another reason people uh, think they haven't gotten anything, ready? Because they're looking in the wrong direction. Because their concepts, they've read too many spiritual books and they believe it should be like this and they're not getting that. They want to see Krishna dancing in the blue light and they haven't seen that. And so when you make that demand, you're not going to get that. Maybe you'll get a, a, a little bit of it, but mostly you don't get it. But if you look carefully at what's actually happening, you see that grace is there, shakti is there, movement is there, growth is there. But you have to look at what actually is. You have to get sweep away the conceptual thing. I was taught this because, because of Baba's magnificent book, Play of Consciousness, which I read, and I, Baba has every kind of spiritual experience known to man. Uh, many of you have read it, so you know what I'm talking about. He traveled here to different worlds. He saw deities, he danced in the blue light. He saw the blue pearl endlessly. He saw the fires of hell, he ran this way. It was just a circus. It was like, uh, it was like the 60s, actually, in his brain all the time. <clears throat> and, um, and so, you know, we all thought, that's what we have to do. And then some, a voice inside me said, it's not going to happen that way for you. It's just not going to happen. And I said, why? Am I a horrible, inferior person? He said, no, he said, you're not built that way. That's not who you are. It'll happen the way it happens. It'll happen in conformity with the way you are. And you should look, look at the... At, at the light, don't look at the dark. Look at what's, what's happening instead of what's not happening. If you have the tendency of always looking, of having that, what is it, mofo? FOMO, FOMO? <laughs> mofo is a different thing. If you're a mofo that has FOMO, if you're a mofo that's got FOMO, anyway, never mind. <clears throat> Nira says, children, when left to themselves and not deformed by older people, have such great trust that all will be well. For example, when they have a small accident, they never think there's going to be something serious. They're spontaneously convinced that it will soon be over. And this helps so powerfully in putting an end to it. <clears throat> well, when one aspires for the force, for the shakti, when one asks for divine, the divine for help, 
if one asks with unshakable certitude that it will come, that it's impossible that it doesn't, then it's sure to come. When you sit to meditate here in this hall, you can be certain that the Shakti will come to you. We just open. If it doesn't come, it's because you're creating some obstacle to it. So give up the obstacle and let it come because Baba's grace is here. Baba's grace is here. <clears throat> I don't know why. It just is. It is this kind, yes, this is truly an inner opening, this trustfulness. And some people are constantly in this state. When there's something to be received, they're always there to receive it. Then there are others, <clears throat> when there's something to, to have and the shakti descends, they're always absent. They're always closed at that moment. Well, those who have this childlike trust are always there at the right moment. <clears throat> Make your A statement. If you're angry, say you're angry. Even if uh, Vani's not there to tell you. <laughs> you know? And making a statement, is a, which means simply be aware of present feeling, that's the, the doorway to it. Just acknowledge that. Confess the state you're in. And that allows it to shift and the shakti behind it to be revealed. And it's strange, isn't it, she says. Outwardly, there's no difference. They may have exactly the same goodwill, the same aspiration, the same wish to do good, but those who have this smiling confidence within them do not question, do not ask themselves whether they will have it or not have it, whether the divine will answer or not. The question does not arise. <clears throat> it is something understood. What I need will be given to me. If I pray, I shall have an answer. If I'm in difficulty and ask for help, the help will come. And only, not only will it come, but it will manage everything. You have to understand that, that when you pray for externals to happen, that may, not be, that may not happen. But if you pray for the presence of the divine, pray for the shakti, that can always happen. And that'll give you the strength to deal with whatever arises. We don't understand why events happen. It's karmic reasons. We have to go through certain things uh, but if you if you looked in the right way to the to the divine, it will always it will always uh, manifest. <clears throat> Let's see. It is with well, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop that right now. Okay. Now I got. Uh, let's see. I've got two two more. Now one is about. Uh, question, there's a prevalent belief that brilliant minds are found in weak bodies. I haven't understood this. <laughs> That's one question. The other question, is it ever okay to lie or hide things from the guru? Which one would you like to hear? <laughs> the weak body. Huh? Which one? The weak body. The brilliant mind and weak body. You like that one? No, you don't. <laughs> no. All right, we'll just do this one. <laughs> this is a very uh, cute answer she gives to this question. And then we'll meditate. Question, is it ever okay to lie or hide things from the guru? Mother. Of course you should be truthful to the guru. However, let's face it. Sometimes people do lie or hide the truth from the guru for one reason 
or another. If you're going to lie to the guru, you have to be very intelligent. <laughs> For one thing, it's easier to remember the truth and you won't trip yourself up. And if you're going to involve other people in your lie, you have to support each other and not betray your unholy path. <laughs> and if you're going to support someone else's lie, that person should be an intelligent person. Otherwise, that person will give you away, and then what will you have achieved? Remember, the guru is not a fool, and besides, he has occult forces helping him. So even if he doesn't know certain things, he comes to know them anyway. <laughs> Good one, huh? Well, let's meditate. <laughs> what do you think of that, Premji? So, all right, we'll meditate for. Uh... <laughs> we'll meditate for 10 minutes. So, Muriel Fossil is good value, huh? We'll meditate for uh, 10 minutes. And when we meditate, we turn away from the externals and we go inside. Just as in sleep, we find great rest. In, in our, in, by withdrawing inward, so in meditation we find great rest and great replenishment. And we find, we look for and find the source, the clear space of good feeling, the, what's called the inner self, the place of joy, the place of peace, the place of love, the place that's very secure. Uh, and that place exists within everyone, a place that's very contented that's not uh, full of desire or fear. And we look for that place and we abide in that place and we build a habit. We build a samskara, as it were. We build a tendency to know that place and to return to that place. Just like you go on a holiday and you find a, a vacation spot that you love near the seaside and every year you want to return to that place and sit there and look at the ocean and uh, make up lies to tell the guru. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> I've lost my train. <laughs> so just as you go and you go in that pleasant place, you want to keep going there, you find that place inside yourself because it exists. The place that you love down uh, go down on the Mornington Peninsula, the place that you love on the beach side, the ocean side, on the lake, that place exists actually within you. The feeling exists within you. So that's where we look in meditation. We go to that place. We let the mind become calm, stop its chattering. We turn away from its neuroses, its anxieties, and we go towards that clear space of good feeling. And we let all the different stories and tendencies disappear. We can say the mantra, Om Namah Shivaya, and let all other thoughts disappear. Or we can watch the breath come in and go out, 
and let the mind dance and do what it wants and let it quiet down to find that place within us. So let's do that now for 10 minutes. And once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And that's not a lie. So let's meditate now. 